You're listening to the Psychedelic Invest Podcast, where we speak with founders, CEOs, investors, advisors, experts, and thought leaders in the brave new world of psychedelics and entheogenic medicines. Brought to you by Psychedelic Invest, bringing you unparalleled psychedelic investing data and analysis. Psychedelic Invest is the industry's leading resource for those looking to invest in the burgeoning psychedelic industry. For more information and to access all of the podcast episodes, check out our website at psychedelicinvest.com slash podcast. And now here's the host of the Psychedelic Invest podcast, Bruce Eckfeld. Welcome, everyone. This is the Psychedelic Invest Podcast. My name is Bruce Eckfeld. I'm your host. Our guest today is Dr. Jordan Tischler. He is CEO and Chief Medical Officer at Inhale MD. He's also a graduate of Harvard Medical School and also instructor at Harvard Medical School. Uh, and he's also president of the Association of Cannabinoid Specialists. We're going to talk to him a little bit about what's going on in this world of psychedelics. As some of you may know, Dr. Tischler was on our cannabis program, Thinking Outside the Bud, <laughs> and we just thought it would be really appropriate to get him in here talking about psychedelics, really just kind of understand from a medical point of view, how does psychedelics really frame for a physician? What are the possibilities? What are the uses? And then a little bit of compare and contrast to the cannabis world, given that you know we've got a lot of work in that area. There's been a lot of progress on use of plant medicine in the cannabis world, and kind of looking now at the psychedelic world, how it's similar and different. Excited for this conversation, excited to learn, I'm sure a lot and also just kind of build some good understanding about, you know, really what psychedelics offer, how the industry is shaping up, and what we might expect in the coming years. So with that, Dr. Tischler, welcome to the program. Oh, thanks for having me, Bruce. It's exciting. I love that intro. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you on. It's a great subject. I'm really excited about this. You know, before we kind of dig into everything kind of that's going on in psychedelics today, give us a little bit of your background and, and how psychedelics have kind of come up for you as a physician and how they're framed. Give us a little bit of the backstory and then we can kind of, we can talk about about the space and what's going on today in psychedelics. Sure. So I often say to people that my background is very conventional. As you mentioned, I went to Harvard. I actually went through the Harvard system three different times, college, medical school, and medical training. Uh-huh. So what we always say is if you do that, then we call you preparation age. Um, <laughs> you know, and then I went off and I, I practiced emergency medicine for about 20 years. And the last 15 of those were through the VA system. And that was sort of how I came to thinking about cannabis as the world, and in particular Massachusetts, where I reside, uh, uh-huh. started to think about medical cannabis. I was in the ER and I was seeing all of these veterans whose lives were harmed by substances. And really, when I say substances, I really mean alcohol, of, yeah. you know, one through nine on the top 10. And I thought, you know, I've never really seen anybody sick from cannabis. So if it's not that dangerous, then maybe I should be learning something about what everyone's talking about is medicine. And that got me into doing a whole lot of research and homework and, and ultimately led to my leaving the VA to practice cannabis medicine full-time. And that then led me into some of the activism around that and really advocating for patient care, which is something that I think is still somewhat sorely lacking, both on the medical side and sort of on the political side, really focusing on what does it take to help people use this medicine properly and effectively and safely and stuff like that. And that's sort of the genesis of the Association of Cannabinoid Specialists. So that's kind of how I ended up in cannabis. And as soon as you're in the world of cannabis, then everyone wants to talk about other psychedelic you know, drugs or medications. So I've become quite familiar with the research 
that's gone on. You know, and the research is interesting because there's old research that's really actually pretty good yeah. from the 1950s. And then, of course, that all got derailed in the 1960s because, you know, it, it's sort of been said these medicines leaked out of the lab into mm -hmm. the counterculture. And then there was a governmental response to that counterculture. And the whole thing, from at least a medical and scientific point of view, got completely muddled up and and shelved right yeah. and so we've got that older literature which is really fascinating in part also because we tend to think of the old literature as oh that's old you know mm -hmm. but it but it was well done and now we've got this recrudescence in in modern times of this research which is largely sort of confirming what was already shown back in the in the 50s you know with regard to things like LSD or MDMA and uh, to a lesser extent psilocybin Mm -hmm. And the one that I'm actually the most familiar with at this point, actually, and I'm not sure, I don't really think it falls in this, in the category of true psychedelics, yeah. but it's ketamine. Yeah. Um, you know, ketamine is not really a, a psychedelic. It's more of a hypnotic or, or dissociative. But in my world where this sort of cannabis meets this other psychedelic world, there's a large need when specifically around issues of depression and anxiety in one bin and pain management in the other bin. And cannabis, as, as we've talked about, can be helpful for those things. But sometimes you need another tool in the toolkit and ketamine turns out to be pretty good for that. Again, if done carefully and sort of under the right conditions. Yeah, how, I think this is an interesting kind of beginning point for some of these conversations, which is I think the sort of cannabis and these kind of psychedelics have been kind of lumped together because of the historic and kind of political context, right? They were all kind of yes. things that got banned, yeah, made illegal for all sorts of, you know, political, racial issues in, you know, last century. But they're quite different. I mean, cannabis is a little, it's a fairly defined category. So we're talking about things that are derived from the cannabis plant. And yes, there's all sorts of form factors. You can do all sorts of things with it medically, recreationally, et cetera. But psychedelic, I mean, it's kind of an odd grouping. And as you're mentioning, you know, some of these are plant-based, some of these are lab-based, some of this is, has different kind of mind-altering effects in different ways, some others. I guess as a physician, how do you kind of categorize some of these things from, you know, lab-based, plant-based, psychedelics, mind-altering in other ways? Like, what's, what's your kind of grouping categorization bucketing of these items? Actually, this may not be the super helpfulest to answer, but actually, I think of them all as individual objects. And the fact that they're grouped is exactly what you said, which is they're grouped only because they got lumped into this political system, you know, and ultimately ended up on Schedule One of the Controlled Substances Act. Mm -hmm. But in terms of thinking about them from a biochemical or neurophysiologic or or medical point of view, uh -huh. they're they're all remarkably different yeah. um, and really have very little connection to each other. Aside from the the political connection and the fact that they do kind of alter your consciousness. Yeah. So I think that each of these things needs and thankfully at this point is getting, you know, its own independent research. It's quite possible, you know, for examples that LSD and psilocybin, you know, we tend to think of them as very similar in terms of the, the trip that they cause, mm -hmm. um, but they're underlying chemistry is fairly different. And as you point out, one comes from a mushroom and the other comes from a laboratory. 
I don't know that the plant versus laboratory makes a lot of difference to me, especially when we're talking about single molecules like LSD or psilocybin. Yeah. But ultimately, the point is that we need to think, you know, as the science progresses, we may find, and I suspect we'll find, that they do different things, not only on the physiologic level, but on the medical level, meaning you may want LSD for this problem and psilocybin for that problem, and you would just use them differently. Mm -hmm. And certainly when we get to thinking about sort of slightly more distant cousins like MDMA, I think it's very clear that we're going to find that those just have different use cases. Yeah. But we're not, I think, quite at that level of specificity now. Yeah. And what are some of the sort of applications that people are finding, right? I mean, we've had kind of a history of these you know, molecules, these drugs used recreationally and, and for various things, but we're just starting to kind of, in some respects, learn more or resurrect the information we had before and kind of taking it and advancing it. What are the ways in which we could use these for some kind of therapeutic benefit? And what are some of the conditions or situations that we seem to have some application or they seem to be some kind of interesting benefits or opportunities for applying these from a medical point of view? Well, you know, the one that sort of resurrected psychedelics was terminal anxiety, by which we mean people who have a, an acutely terminal illness, some sort of cancer, and we're thinking that they're likely to pass away in, you know, a few weeks to months, and they're having a lot of existential anxiety, as one might imagine one would. And there were studies that showed that sort of a single dose of MDMA could stave off or at least ameliorate that anxiety for weeks on end. And that was the sort of thing that really piqued people's interest and I think really jump-started the renaissance of looking at these chemicals. We've seen research now looking at kind of going beyond just, it's horrible to say, but mm -hmm. sometimes research gets applied first to people who are about to die because there's sort of this, yeah. you know, sense of like, well, they're going to die and if we can do something to help them, great. So now we've tried to move past that Mm -hmm. that population and into thinking about people who have longer time frames and you know treating their anxiety and again we find that that MDMA and NLSD have been shown to help control people's anxiety for longish periods of time meaning weeks to months yeah. uh, and then if we compare that at least superficially against some of our other treatment options like an SSRI that you take every day and that may have certain side effects that some people don't tolerate very well. You know, it's not a suggestion. I don't think anyone would suggest that that it's an either or proposition and that, you know, we'll get rid of the SSRIs if we could just have MDMA at our disposal. I think it's really about figuring out what works best for which situations and for which type of, of patient and then being able to apply it and see how things go and adjust so that if the SSRI isn't working, then maybe MDMA is a better choice for that individual. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're just you know, adding tools to the toolbox while furthering our understanding of how all of this works. I mean, I think that's a, a part that we shouldn't overlook, which is that this research is not 
only on, so if we give somebody MDMA, how do they feel? But what is going on at that neurologic level that then leads to them feeling better? And we're learning, whether we're talking about cannabis or any of these psychedelics, we're learning leaps and bounds about the way our neurology works. And that's really fascinating. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that, because I think we've spoken on the on the cannabis program, you know, understanding the endocannabinoid system and like kind of what we're learning about it and what we understand kind of it's regulating and the to two different receptors and all this. Like we, I think we're developing a fairly good understanding of the body's systems and how these plant medicines will interact with that to kind of change our functions and homeostasis and stuff. What do we know about the, the psychedelics or, or these various compounds and, and molecules that we've discovered, both plant and lab? Like what, what's actually happening or what's changing inside our bodies that are causing these kind of effects or, or hopefully you know, developing these kind of benefits for folks? I think that's a great question, and I'm not sure that I can give you a good answer to that. <laughs> I think that we know some broad strokes about the way LSD interacts with particularly the GABA systems, which are a particular set of systems that use a neurotransmitter called GABA. Um, mm -hmm. But I think our understanding there is somewhat limited still in terms of what it's doing in that context. And one of the areas that I think we're very limited at this point is understanding how the cousins like psilocybin and MDMA interact but seem to be different, right? I mean, I don't mm -hmm. think that anybody would suggest that the subjective experience of LSD and MDMA are the same. I mean, there are similarities, to be sure, but I think people would say they're pretty radically different experiences. And, and why they're different, I think that remains somewhat less well understood. If there are basic scientists listening to this podcast, some of them may be shaking their head right now because they, I'm <laughs> sure, know more about these molecular details than I do. Um, and if they're shaking their heads, they should get in touch with you and be on the podcast so they can fill in the blanks. We'll, we'll get them on. Yeah, I'm curious, like from um, as a physician, like someone that's looking for solutions to help patients deal with issues, you know, physical, psychological, otherwise, I guess what's actually possible right now, or how do you see the therapeutic process happening with these things? Because I think that's what I've discovered or what I've kind of learned about the psychedelic space. It's not just, oh, well, take two of these every day and you'll start feeling better, right? Like there's, there's a much more sort of complicated sort of diagnosis and, and therapeutic sort of application process and things you have to do around it. I mean, because what are you, what are you finding as being how this therapy is kind of shaping up from a medical point of view? Well, I think that right now there isn't really any shaping up from a general medical point of view, which is to say that none of these substances, well, none of the ones that we're primarily talking about, LSD, MDMA, psilocybin, that sort of thing, they're not available to, to treat somebody with. Yeah. And so quite frankly, my experience hands-on with these medicines is extraordinarily limited. They're still schedule one. You can't buy them. You can't prescribe them. So essentially there are practitioners out there who are doing this using street level yeah. medicine sort of in their office illegally and under the table. And mm -hmm. they're perhaps braver than I, um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but what where we are with those chemicals is more in that research phase where we are doing, you know, phase two and phase three trials on these, which means you can't just get on the study and you can't even I tried become a <laughs> member of the study team. 
because I, you know, yeah. I know some of these folks pretty well, and they just sort of said, "Look, we've got enough docs at the moment. That's not where we're where we need to focus." Yeah, not the limited constraint. Yeah, right, exactly. So I, I, you know, I wanted to be more involved in that, and I haven't really been able to, which is kind of a bummer. But in terms of like to your question, if Johnny Q Public thinks, ah, you know, I have terrible depression, and I would love to consider MDMA therapy, that's just not available yet. We haven't finished the research enough to make that widely available. It's part of the reason why I cycle back to ketamine because ketamine is a schedule three, which means that it's readily prescribable. And it really just then becomes a matter of whether it's something that you know how to make work. And you actually mentioned something a moment ago that I think is really important. With all of these medicines, whether we're talking about ketamine or we're talking about MDMA or psilocybin or those guys, they don't work as simply like, and we know that an SSRI will, will have some benefit just by taking it. Yeah. We also know that psychotherapy has some benefit just by doing it. And that, you know, the best research tends to suggest that when you mix both, you get the best of all outcomes. And I think that we've seen this in the MDMA and psilocybin research that doing it in a closely monitored setting with guides or therapists who mm-hmm. who know what they're doing and know sort of how to interact and when to intervene or when to to help refocus the experience those are more helpful than your kind of classic recreational experience where you just drop a couple of tabs and see what happens yeah and you know the thing is like we've had people using these substances recreationally since they were outlawed to be sure and not overwhelming case studies of look how much better my patient's depression got when they dropped some acid right so it's probably not just dropping the acid that's helpful it's really doing this in the right context that allows you to then explore whatever the psychological features are that are creating this problem for you. Yeah, it seems much more, I mean, if, if we kind of compare it to cannabis being, you know, cannabis is much more of a, you take some product, it changes your kind of chemistry in different ways that has certain positive effects and help you deal with things, but it's a very kind of chemical internal kind of change. Whereas the, the sort of psychedelic space feels much more like these molecules, these, these chemicals will create kind of an opening or create kind of a pulling things apart, but that you need kind of this process, therapeutic process to actually understand it, kind of put it back together, make sense of it, integrate it. Like it seems to be much more of a tool as part of a process than kind of a solution in and of itself. What have you seen in terms of people experimenting with that? So I think what you just said is absolutely true of all of the psychedelic chemicals that we've been talking about. I think that cannabis can be used that way. It just isn't commonly. Um, That, you know, for a lot of people, you know, if they're treating pain, for example, which is something that the psychedelics really don't address, you know, then it's kind of more of a take it like it were an aspirin kind of thing. Whereas, you know, for patients who have the same sorts of anxiety and depression that we might contemplate using those psychedelics, we're often treating them kind of more in that medical model will just, you know, take some cannabis at bedtime and it will help you with your anxiety and depression. But my suspicion is that if we were doing this, if we were using cannabis-assisted psychotherapy mm-hmm. in the way that we might use MDMA or psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy, we'd probably be getting the most mileage for what we need. And I've sort of explored that a little bit in my clinic but not enough to really have anything to report because it's difficult to do. And and there's also, 
logistical issues, right? Mm, Are you going to, you have this in the office, then you have people who are intoxicated with one substance or another. How do you deal with their being able to get there safely and go home safely? Now that we're doing everything on Zoom, you know, I've wanted to circle back around to that a bit, Uh but we, we haven't gotten there. Yeah. You know, you mentioned a little bit of the, you know, where we are from a legal structure, right? I mean, cannabis, we've legalized in many states. We've got medical programs, adult use, recreational programs, right? Fairly developed industry, a lot of money going into it, you know, but it's shaping up in a, I'll, I guess, say a particular way, right? Like there's definitely the kind of these two parts of the market. The adult use recreational side has been fueling a lot of this. You know, we still have medical programs that get, I think, complicated when you get adult use in, in as well. But, sure. you know, it's, it's kind of done what it's done. Psychedelics seem to be quite different. I mean, there's still Schedule 1, and it feels like it's much more of a kind of a drug development kind of model industry than cannabis has been. And I'm curious kind of what that means or how this industry develops, what it ends up getting kind of developed for, and you know what the dynamics might be. Have you any, any thoughts or comparisons to, to cannabis that might be helpful in understanding how this market's going to play out? Well, I think that people generally feel like cannabis is sort of a more known substance to them, Mm -hmm. right? And so people are much more willing to contemplate self-medication with cannabis. And and there's also the fact that you can grow it yourself, which you know you could do with mushrooms, but I think is less commonly contemplated. Yeah. But I think there's also another part of it, which is the regulatory structure. Yeah. Right. With these single molecules like LSD and, and psilocybin MDMA, there's a clear pathway to go through development with the FDA to bring this to market as a medicine, Mm -hmm. right? It requires some extra hoop jumping because it's Schedule 1, and ultimately it would need to be removed from Schedule 1. But if you can actually get yourself through a Phase 3 trial with this stuff, which is possible and is happening, then, then ultimately it would be necessarily removed from schedule one because it can no longer be said that it has no medical value. Right. So I think that there's, that it makes sense that there's a a much more traditional or conventional development cycle going on here with those medications. You can't take cannabis through a phase three trial because the medicine that you use in the phase three trial has to be exactly the stuff you would take to market. And so since cannabis is a plant, that, you know, defies that, you know, how do you, you can't say that one batch of blue dream is the same as the next, right? Let alone whatever other strains you might be contemplating. What I think is that ultimately cannabis-based pharmaceuticals will be developed and they will be, you know, combinations of the various components in specific and reliable ratios that then will be able to go through that process. But that's just not happening now and it's not happening quickly. But I do think we'll get there. And what does it take to go through when we talk about the clinical trials, we talk about phase one, phase two, phase three. I mean what what does that really mean from a drug development, drug approval point of view? And where do you see some of these psychedelics in in that process or what 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 work have you seen in this space to kind of advance them through this process? To to be a little bit glib I think the answer to your question is sort of 10 years and a hundred million dollars. Yeah. Um, <laughs> At least. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, you know, the process works like you start out doing this stuff, what we call preclinical, meaning mice or cell culture or those sorts of things mm-hmm. that kind of prove that it's relatively safe, at least in those settings. 
and that there is some anticipated benefit and value. And when you've done enough of those and who decides what is enough is really a negotiation between the company that's doing the research and the FDA, then they may permit you to go to a phase one trial. And a phase one trial has specific goals, which oftentimes I think the public don't really understand. In a phase one trial, you're just looking for sort of what's the dose range that we think that this might do something in. Mm -hmm. And then you get into a phase two trial, and then it's looking at what toxicities might we encounter, right? Is this safe? And then you get into the phase three trial, which is really, okay, now that we know the dose and we know that it's relatively safe, does it actually work Mm -hmm. therapeutically? And there are refinements on that, but that's sort of the general gist of it. And you kind of have to march through that progression and you set up these ever larger human trials that have to meet certain ethical standards to be sure. And then you go back with that data, if it turns out that it's positive data, to the FDA and they review it and they say, great, go on to the next step or, you know, we need more convincing, do it again Mm -hmm. with certain parameters like more people. And so that's kind of the process. And it's long because treating people and collecting data happens over many months to years for each one of these studies, plus the process of enrolling people, right? It's not like you say, we need a thousand people, here they are, right? It's you bring people into the study over time as you encounter them and they fit the criteria for enrollment. So, you know, a study that might have a thousand people in it, it could take, you might be studying them for one year, but when it's all said and done, it may have been a three-year process. Yeah. Well, and certainly given the fact that this is, it's not just take two and tell me how you feel tomorrow. And there's there's some kind of therapeutic process around it and things like that needs to be administered. It seems like a fairly expensive and complicated research to do. It is. And, you know, where it gets even more complicated is that, you know, unless there is a company that is specifically trying to bring this to market, you know, a lot of these medications don't have that kind of a benefactor or they need to get further down the evidence trail before a company is interested in sort of taking it on. And that's why we have the federal government, right? I mean, where clinical research gets done is at academic institutions that are funded primarily by the government, which means that the government has to be willing to fund that kind of research. And so they have a very significant role in not only permitting, but then choosing by the assignment of grants what gets done and what doesn't get done. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it can be. It can be misused. And certainly we've seen this class of agents get left behind because of that political assignment to Schedule 1 that, you know, should never have happened. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, if so, if we are able to push these through clinical trials, we bring, you know, we're actually able to get to some of these things to, a, you know, market and, and generally available to the public. What are some of the things that we're hoping to treat with psychedelics and, and why is it interesting and what does it add to our toolbox? And, um, you know, because I think that there's there's been a lot of discussion of, of being able to treat some conditions, some situations in a way that we either haven't been able to before, we don't have effective solutions for, we don't have long-lasting solutions for. I mean, from a physician point of view, what are some of your hopes around what psychedelics can do for, you know, general health? I think a lot of it really lands in that mental health arena. You know, whether we're talking about anxiety that comes about from some other disease state, like the cancer example that we talked about a while ago, or just generalized anxiety disorder, which is very prevalent and Mm -hmm 
and really upsets people's lives, right? I mean, it's very hard to be happy and productive and and all of those positive things when you, you know, feel that your calamities are happening all the time. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, we have medicines, as I mentioned, in the SSRIs particularly, that can help, but they don't help everybody and they don't help necessarily all the way. And they come with baggage. I mean, all medicines come with baggage and we should not, you know, canonize any particular class as scot-free. Every medicine has side effects because essentially every medicine is a toxin that we learn how to use to our advantage. But if we misuse it, then it it becomes problematic. So I think that, you know, we're looking at a pre-pandemic, we were looking at a huge mental health crisis. Yeah. And I don't even want to say post-pandemic. I think in intra-pandemic, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we are um, we are experiencing you know a spike on the spike. So being able to address that would be hugely important. So I think we've learned a lot of things. We've learned how to do psychotherapy by Zoom. That's a great thing. We are prescribing the medicines that we have, the SSRIs, but. At some point, you know, we reach the end of what we can do at the moment. And so having new tools in the toolbox is a great thing. It's also interesting to have medicines that are occasional medicines, meaning unlike an SSRI that you would take daily, Mm -hmm. this is something that you might take every six to 12 weeks and then be really well in between. And there's something attractive about that in terms of the efficacy and not really needing people to be on top of sort of their compliance and they're taking it on a daily Mm -hmm. basis. So I think that, you know, that's attractive also. And when you then couple it with the the psychotherapeutic aspect, there is a sense or a hope that this could even be more effective than what we have at the moment. But that, that remains to be seen. And whether that's sort of giddy optimism or real, I think that you know, we'll just have to see. My suspicion is that everything has a rosy glow at the beginning. And (laughs) then, you know, and then then we find the reality. And the reality is it's going to be great for some people. It's going to be hell on earth for some other people. And then there's going to be sort of a group in between that sort of, you know, it was neither here nor there and it just didn't didn't fly. Um, One thing to remember is that whenever we get a new medicine, if it has 40% efficacy, we consider that a home run. Yeah. You know, so and you can say, well, 40 percent is not a huge number, but that, you know, compared to what we expect, 40 percent is really as good as it gets. Yeah. Um, and I think actually the cannabis numbers are better than that, but I don't have actual hard data on that. Yeah, I think it's, you know, we're, I think we're all cautiously optimistic. Right? Like there's, there's, there's opportunities here, right? It's not going to be a panacea. It's not going to solve everything, but it could add some really significant, powerful elements to a toolbox that, you know, with the appropriate diagnosis and, you know, context to be, you know, administered could have some really interesting effects. I think it's going to be interesting too, because of the, you know, the stigma that's attached to it. Yeah. And I'm not sure, maybe stigma is not quite the right word. There's clearly is stigma attached to it. But there's also, I mean, I, I have particularly with my older patients, even with regard to cannabis, they say things to me like, you know, I can't imagine giving up control. I can't imagine, mm. I don't want to be altered. And, no. you know, in line with the idea that one's experience on some of these substances is influenced by one's pre-use mindset, having people who are that fearful is kind of a setup for things to not go well. And so it's going to be very interesting to think about the the pre-administration coaching that needs to go on to help people 
get past that level of anxiety so that they can, mm -hmm. you know, really experience the, what the medicine can do for them. And frankly, I kind of understand that feeling. Um, no. I think that, you know, cannabis perhaps is just more widely used so people know some, you know, their friendly neighborhood yeah. pothead or whatever, and it's uh -huh. not just so completely crazy. I think people have even more fear about the psychedelics. Yeah. And so we're going to have to work hard to get past that. And to the extent that these things do leak out into the community, my concern is that it will undermine the credibility of these things as a medicine. Um, we've certainly seen that in the cannabis arena. You've mentioned a couple of times how, you know, now we have states where it's recreationally legal as well as medically legal. And yeah. the, the, I don't think there's any instance I can think of in which having it recreationally available has actually been a good thing for patients. Yeah. You know, and people can talk about better access. And I often say, well, access to the medicine without the guidance that goes with it is really not particularly helpful. And so yeah. I, I fear that the same thing may happen with the psychedelics, you know, in this round two, meaning that not the first round, which was in the 50s and 60s. Yeah. But yeah. now I think there's, there's some risk that we may lose control of this again and have it go back into kind of more of that recreational thing and and again sort of skip the how do we actually take care of people you know who need it yeah uh, i think it's it's going to be fascinating to see how this plays out and and i think to some extent what do we learn from cannabis or what have we learned from cannabis in terms of the kind of the regulatory side and, and the development of the industries and, and how you know how do we apply that to the psychedelic space and you know hopefully make some you know at least different decisions and hopefully they're better decisions yeah, <laughs> around, yeah, around absolutely. this um, and we'll see what develops Dr. Tischel, it's been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, about the work that you do, what's the best way to get that information? Well, if they're looking for me specifically, they should come to my website, which is inhalemd.com. Again, inhalemd.com. If they're interested in my work with the Association of Cannabinoid Specialists, they should go to cannaspecialists.org. And there's lots and lots of resources about cannabis and medical care. And on the ACS side, there's a lot on regulatory issues that are confronting us. So if people want to check that out, I think they would find it useful. Excellent. I'll make sure that all the links are in the show notes so people can click through and get that information. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time today, Dr. Tischler. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to the Psychedelic Invest Podcast. If you liked this episode, please be sure to leave a five-star rating and leave us a review. You can find more episodes on all the major podcasting platforms and our website at psychedelicinvest.com slash podcast. <laughs>